You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Grace, it humbles our pride, it builds our assurance, and this doctrine has to be handled with great care. I knew friends in seminary, including myself, who were in the stage cage, the cage stage, sorry. Uh, You know what that is. When you become a Reformed believer, you should be put into a cage for two years until you kind of temper out a little bit. (laughs) Um, (laughs) When I was a brand new Christian, I should have been put into a cage. My senior year, there were two Jewish, I had six roommates, two of them were Jewish, and we were all friends. I became a Christian after college, and one of the first things I did was shoot off a letter to my Jewish friends, which was not the wisest thing to do, because I wasn't very tactful, and I never heard from them again. So, But I did tell them about Jesus, so who knows? God chooses sinners in love that they may become regenerate and adopted children. He gives us the right of inheritance, which is an incredible blessing. <clears throat> And as a guarantee of that inheritance, he fills us with the promised Holy Spirit. You know all of this. And Jesus then highlights the importance of preaching the gospel in applying salvation to God's elect. This is the primary means. Now, there are other means, other ways, but preaching is the primary means that he promises to bless. Listen to what he says to John the Baptist. Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. Because he's, he's waffling, he's wondering if I am the promised Messiah. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. That whole string of descriptors is supposed to prove that he is the promised Messiah. What's interesting is that the phrases ascend in crescendo-like fashion, suggesting that preaching is the most important, even, than raising the, even more so than raising the dead. So he's building here, and the consummation of these phrases is the poor have good news preached to them. That is the indication that he is the promised Messiah, and that good news is Christ. So Paul himself then refers to preaching as the vital means by which sinners are saved by Christ. You remember this text? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? You have to believe in Christ. And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So these three phrases or clauses, all of them suggest that preaching is the primary God-ordained method of bringing sinners into the kingdom. All of this is by way of preliminary information, but I think it's important. So it behooves us to consider, okay, well then what is preaching? How do we do it? What should we expect when we come to a service of worship? What is the sermon, which is what we're going to talk about? Any questions, though, at this point? Any comments? Okay. Impoverished preaching. T. David Gordon says, I quote, in my opinion, less than 30% of those who are ordained to the Christian ministry can preach in, can preach an even mediocre sermon. 
less than 30%. He's a professor in a seminary. He was for many, many years, a pastor, a presbyter. Um, and that is a tragic statement from someone whose opinion I respect. This homiletical impoverishment has to do, he claims, with cultural changes. Few sermons have unity, recognizable order, or rationale for its points that you're, you're arguing, you're persuading, you're showing the reason why you're saying these things. He says, our sheep do not need gourmet meals, but they do need good solid nourishment, which is true. I mean, if I look back on 30 years of eating meals, Linda cooks great meals, but I can't remember, well, I can't remember a lot of things, but I can't remember like individual meals, right? So, wow, that's just like out of the ballpark. It's just a consistent, nourishing meal schedule that has kept me alive. And the same was true with preaching. It doesn't have to be a gourmet meal. Not everybody's going to be a Spurgeon, but of course there needs to be nourishment. And we're going to find out what that is. Societal changes have led to poor preaching, such as media altering the social environment. We're all aware of these kinds of things, image-based society. Previous generations were influenced by language-based media. They read the paper. They read books. They read articles. Today, we're image-based media. We look at TikTok. We see YouTube. Those kinds of things. And what happens is that this movement in societal, society has altered our sensibilities. And it's reflected in a decline in the ability to read and to write texts. My kids laugh at me because when I send like uh, texts, I write my texts like a letter. You know, I don't say IDK or things like that. I'll say, I don't know. You know? And they think, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. Well, that's because I'm, I'm old enough to remember when there wasn't such a thing as texts. It was a language-based. Expository preaching means to explain and illustrate a passage. The word expository is related to the word expose. You expose the meaning of the text. So that's the preacher's job, to explain, to illustrate, to apply the text so that we, God's people, can hear his word and understand his revelation. Expository preaching. And typically what that also means is that you're going through a book. Why do we do that? Well, because you can't avoid the hard texts. If I'm a topical preacher, I'm just going to pick things that I want to pick. Uh, what, what feels good to me? What, what do I like? What's my hobby horse, right? If I'm going through a book, I've got to tackle it all, whatever comes up. A result then is it widespread insensitivity of hearing. We have not had a steady diet of good preaching. Many of the sheep today are satisfied with the status quo because they have nothing with which to compare, unless they're reading old books, dead theologians, many of which are sermons, like the one we're reading in Men's Fellowship on Saturday. It's a collection of sermons that John Flavel gave on the glory of Christ. Jesus says this, take care then how you hear. Isn't that interesting? How you hear. 
implying that the hearer has a tremendous responsibility. Take care then how you hear, for to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, who has not heard properly, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. So the preacher has a tremendous obligation, and the hearer has an equally important obligation in this whole process of the preaching event. And I've often said this, and forgive me if I repeat myself, but I do think hearing is more difficult than preaching. It really is. I'm prepared. I know what I'm going to say. I just got to get up there and do it. And it takes something to do that, but you're coming in. You're not, well, you are prepared, hopefully, but you don't know what's coming. And so you have to examine what's being said by what you know of Scripture to see if that's the truth. So it's a very difficult thing. It's not easy. The hearer's duty is to submit to God's will. But he can't do this unless the preacher does his duty. So I do have a duty. Any questions so far on what's been said here? Okay. So R.L. Dabney, Robert Louis Dabney, was a Southern Presbyterian in the 19th century. He was also a theologian, um, a very brilliant man. And he laid out a book, he had a book in which there are seven requisites for the sermon. Textual fidelity was number one. The preacher declares the mind of God and not his own. It's not, you don't care what I have to say. You don't need my opinions. You want to know what God has to say. You can read the newspapers. You can go online. We all have the same information. But what does God have to say on the Lord's Day? Unity. Number two, the preacher must have one main subject of his discourse. And there's a little bit of wriggle room here because some texts um, lend themselves to a wide variety, but there needs to be a focus, a unity to the sermon. That you come out of there saying, okay, somebody asked you, what was the sermon about? Well, I can say this. It was about the grace of God. The whole sermon has to have reference to this from start to finish. You should expect that. The the preacher must propose one definite oppression on the hearer's soul. If it's about judgment, okay, when I walk out, I'm humbled. If it's about grace, okay, I walk out and I am encouraged. I'm humbled as well, but I'm encouraged. If it's about Christ on the cross, you get the idea. There needs to be this impression. Third, evangelical tone. There must be a general savor of Christianity and zeal for God's glory. Does the preacher believe this? Is he a Christian? Does it come through? Do I get the impression that he's for me or against me? You know, sometimes we preachers, we can lash and spank and there's no grace. Is he eager for my salvation? It's an evangelical tone, Ernie. Excuse me. Could you volunteer to help with the nursery? We have some children that feel like they're being cheated by not being in a Sunday school yet. Thank you, brother. Thank you. And thank you, Anastasia. Number four, instructiveness. So if you hear a sermon, excuse me, it should be full of food for the soul and thought to inform the mind. 
Again, we're not just about emotionally manipulating people. You should be instructed. We should learn something. Now, it might be something you've already known, but you're learning it again. And it's, all, it's important to hear these truths over and over again. Christianity is an intelligent faith. It comes to us as reasoning creatures. And so we, our faith, it comes through the mind to the heart. It has to reach the heart. If it doesn't reach the heart, it's worthless. You're a Pharisee. But it does go through the mind first. And I think so much of today's evangelicalism is aiming just directly at the heart and skipping the important step of the mind. There needs to be instruction. That's fourth. Fifth, movement. The sermon ought to have a sustained progress urging us to a practical impression. What, what does this have to do with me? What does Jonah have to do with me, this prophet who lived thousands of years before me? <clears throat> does it have any implication for my life? And you should be able to say something. Fifth, sixth, sorry, two, four, six, yeah. This has to do with the overall intellectual, emotional, and spiritual impact of the sermon. Does it make a point? And again, <clears throat> I mean, as a preacher who has, um, you know, I've been doing this for a while, and I realize that these things, we improve over time. I mean, every, all of us. So it's a little unfair to ask a recent seminary grad, um, okay, you need to have this down pat. <clears throat> Ray and Joyce were extremely gracious with me when we first started. They were encouraging, you know, uh, but I realized I didn't hit any of these, probably. It places a convincing, compelling weight on your soul with which you must agree or disagree. I don't agree with that because of this reason, or I agree with that. I can see why he said this. It's in the scriptures. Finally, order. This has to do with organization, as the parts of the sermon ought to be properly arranged. If you get a kid's log, you'll always notice, right, intro, exposition, application. Okay, it's boring, it's the same every week, but you, there's order. You, you know what to expect. It's like the liturgy. You come to church, if you've been here for a while, you know what to expect. There's a, all the um, elements of worship are the same. The forms are different, the sermon content is different, but the, form, or the uh, elements are the same. And there is a, a security in that, I think. You know one of the reasons that the kids loved Mr. Rogers so much? Right. Every day. They could, he comes in, takes off his sweater, hangs it up. Good morning, neighbor. You know. And they knew what to expect. There is security in that. Earlier parts should prepare for the later parts. Hearers should be able to reproduce the outline. So, any questions on Dabney's seven requisites? And all of us as preachers ought to try to aim for this. Ruthanne? Outstanding. That's awesome. I'm not boring. That's good. <laughs> Ray? Yeah, just a point of clarification. Dr. Wright always had these seven requisites in the service. He always, always preached Christ in the crucified. We're thankful for that. Thank you. You continue to be gracious. I appreciate it. <laughs> 
Ray? Ray? So in terms of Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> it's for God. Yeah, well, we, <clears throat> one thing, and this is something that you are extremely good at and you've done well over the 30 years I've known you, is to invite people to church. That's one. Two, we need to take the preaching to them. I remember a story. <clears throat> uh, Park Street Church up in Boston is right on the corner of the big green area, the park, downtown Boston. And uh, the preacher, I forget his name, it escapes me right now, Harold John Ockengay, he was the preacher. He had them build a little, like, parapet's the wrong word, but it's, a, it's an upper doorway, and they built out a little uh, platform where he could come out there on Sunday evenings when everybody was gathering, doing their picnics and stuff, and he would preach. Just preach, just open air, as loud as he could. And it was a wonderful way for him, authoritatively, as a minister of the gospel, to declare the salvation of God. And many people were benefited. Uh, yes, Jared? Initially, you made a distinction between, you know, we touched on election and kind of accented the fact that we don't go to somebody at the grocery store and, you know, are you elected? You get <laughs> That's uh, good, yeah. No. So, you know, be in mind of that, right? They don't know any different. This is what Christianity is, and they love it, you know? So I think it, it, it takes faith to say, okay, I'm bringing you to my church. You know, he's talking about predestination in Romans 11, but hey, let's see what the Lord does, you know? 1 Corinthians 14 says the unbeliever comes in and he falls down and says, God is in this place. I don't understand those words that he's talking about, but I know God is in this place, you know? You know what that's like. Melissa? Well, um, actually, the PCA has an office called Evangelist. You're right. Um, and Paul tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. But I think all ministers are called to do that work. So I'm not sure. I mean, my denomination has an office, so I, I support it. I'm not sure I see that in Scripture, but I'm not sure it's wrong that somebody has the power to go into an unchurched area where there's no church, and he just begins to gather and form a church. And he has quite a bit of power, like to appoint elders. So, yeah, I think that there's some... Obviously, people are called to that kind of ministry, and I think it's very important. Ward? Uh, to Jared's point, I think coming from uh, a more uh, non-denominational background, I think uh, one of the things that's, that really spoke to me about coming to a church that was liturgical to some degree is uh, the, the sense of transcendence and significance of what, what is happening here. And I think uh, there's been a lot of like sociological research done on the meaning crisis. And I think for a lot of um, 
secular people, sort of what you win them with is what you win them to. And so bringing them into something that it should feel like there's transcendence and weight to what's happening. That's a very good point. I like what you said. What you win them with, you win them to. So if you try to win them with entertainment, you have to keep entertaining them, right? Uh, so that's a good point, a very good point. Yeah. Okay. When a sermon is done well, we usually don't complain about length. You know, <laughs> come on. <clears throat> we get caught up in it. We become lost in the moment. We lose a sense of time. I'll never forget a Presbytery meeting. Well, actually, T. David and I were sitting next to each other, and one of the pastors of a small Pennsylvania church was preaching at that presbytery meeting. <clears throat> it was the best presbytery meeting sermon I've ever heard. And this guy, he, he, just, he, he was so quiet in presbytery, nobody ever believed that he even preached. But he got up there and he preached this sermon, and when he was done, T. David turned to me and said, now that was a sermon. It was awesome. And I didn't even know how long it was. We got caught up in it. We became lost in the moment. We had lost this sense of time. And the Lord uses that. Paul prolonged his speech until midnight, and a young man named Eutychus sank into deep sleep as Paul still talked longer. You know. Now, Eutychus kind of got tired, but the rest of them enjoyed it, I think. If the sermon is full of important content and well-organized, then usually it will be well-received. Gordon says people may very well have reduced, a reduced attention span, but even so, they have no difficulty giving attention to a discourse they deem important and well-organized. Sermon length is measured in minutes beyond interest. So once your interest wanes, okay, now it's become too long, right? And so that's the reason for the seven requisites, that it helps us and one of the preacher's jobs is to make the meal palatable, presentable. Emergent churches, this was a movement, I think, I think more in the late 90s and 2000s. I can't remember the time frame. But the emergent church believed that this whole thing that we're doing was outmoded, outdated. And so they drew the conclusion that outdated liturgical practices need to be replaced. These churches are dead. We've got to try something new. And what they failed to see is that it may not be the liturgical practices that have led to dying congregations. Dead churches may not be doing the wrong things, but are most likely doing right things incompetently. Right? Okay, there is preaching. But as T. David would argue, it's impoverished. The requisites aren't there. It's not based upon the word. Christ is not in the sermon, that kind of thing. Bad preaching today is not the result of the failure of the seminaries. They get blamed for all kinds of things. It's not the result of the failure of the seminaries. The problem is the condition of the typical ministerial candidate when he arrives at seminary. And I've seen this. I have many, I had uh, classmates in seminary who um, basically came to seminary for healing. They thought, well, you know, I'm having struggles. Uh, they hadn't been trained at all. And they just thought, well, the seminary ought to be the good place for me to go to be healed. And I said, well, that's not the place. You should go to the church. Get in the church. Sit in the church. Engage. Listen. Serve. Get healing. And then come to seminary. 
And that's a problem. Our culture has become increasingly illiterate, not illiterate, illiterate. We can read, but we don't read, right? We text. We look at what's it called, uh, Twitter. You know, how many characters, 150 characters or something like that. Emails, texts, TikTok, etc. So we're illiterate. <clears throat> it's becoming worse and worse. Any questions on this before we move on? Don? Yeah. You know, you say it's not, not a problem in the seminary. I remember going up to Boston and listening to the head of the Harvard Seminary, and he was way out of the line. So there is a problem with the seminary. Yeah, with the apostate seminaries, you're exactly right. Yeah, there's some seminaries that are just way off the range, right? You're right. But... For a good seminary, the candidates they're getting, they've had to do remedial work, uh, whereas before they got a candidate that was well-trained. Alex? Uh, I was just going to comment on that last uh, sentence. A lot of people that I know and grew up with, they see reading as more of a chore or work than uh, something of enjoyment, and it's something that I've had to uh, sort of discipline myself to do, and now I've learned reading, I, I read every day, um, but it, it really is seen as like, as a, well, that, that's work that requires effort, I, I want to relax, so I don't want to read. Right. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. It's a discipline. It's like a muscle. You have to train it. But the more you do it, and the more you enjoy it, it does become more pleasant, right? It is enjoyable. And your mind, I mean, it's, it's formed, it's strengthened. And you're able to come to the text of Scripture, ultimately, and understand it more clearly. There's a difference between reading for information and reading texts. The former permits a disinterest in how the textual matter is composed. I just want to get information. That's all I want. Info. Well, it's a poem. Well, I just want... This poem is worthless. I can't get any information out of that. Okay, but this poet is helping us to see things that we don't normally see, right? The latter, reading texts, is a laboriously slow process, as Alex hinted at, and appreciates the how of the text. Look at what he's done with these words. Look at his insights and the way he's using text and syntax and grammar. People today read for information almost never for sheer pleasure, which is what Alex just said. Ministers, this is tough, they generally read the Bible for information, scanning for the content of Revelation. I just want to scan it to get that bit and build my sermon, right? The practice of speed reading, they practice speed reading and don't raise questions about how the passage is constructed. Different genres in Scripture. You know, Pastor Pilon was going through the Psalms. Very different genre of Revelation than Narrative, you know, going through acts. Very different. So you have to appreciate how it's made. Their sermons often misuse biblical texts as simply springboards for their own thoughts. I'm sure we've all heard that. Reading texts demands a close and intentional reading focusing on the text before us. This is a text. What's, what's being said here? What's the flow of the paragraph? What's the context People stop and poets stop and stare at that which we merely glance at because poets are important. They pause to notice what is significant. They help us in the hustle and bustle of life to stop and to recognize something of wonder. 
They can do it with rhyme. They can do it with meter. They can do it with all kinds of things. It rescues us, according to T. David, from the mundaneness of life. It shocks us out of the cynicism to see with wonder. We're thankful for our poets. Sometimes they're kind of odd. (laughs) But we're thankful for what they help us to see and appreciate. TV doesn't depict realities well, but exhibits the superficial and the trivial. So for a TV generation, it cultivates within us an impatient attitude. Just give me the info. It's all I need. I just want to know what you want me to know. Neil Postman expressed a preference for the Three Stooges over the McNeil-Lara report. Neither program, he says, was significant, but one had the pretense of significance. So I thought that was interesting. Neil Postman wrote the book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, you know, and he bemoaned this idea that we're a TV generation. I think he wrote that back in, what, the 80s or 90s? I can't remember when he wrote I'm sorry? Okay, yeah, exactly. Late 80s and early 90s, yeah, okay. TV is an inappropriate medium for Christian truth. Think of it, sin, Christ, coming judgment, eternal damnation, putting it on the screen. It's just an inappropriate medium, but it's very appropriate from the pulpit where you have an ordained minister representative of Christ declaring authoritatively the truth of God's word. And again, it never goes outdated. We might not like it, but it's not outdated. God promises to bless it. Any questions on the sensibility of significance? Okay. Thoughts about content? The content should be the person, character, work of Jesus Christ, ultimately. Roman Catholicism offers up the Son to the Father in the Mass. Protestantism offers down God's Son to his chosen people. Very different focus, right? The priestly and the prophetic. The priestly offering up to God, the prophetic declaring to God's people. And I think the latter is more biblical and evangelical. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I would also say that he would say the preaching of that word of the cross is folly. We've seen that today. They think it's folly. And the difficulty is many preachers will be impacted by that and be um, timid. They think, well, this is foolish, but I've gone to seminary. I'm not capable of doing anything else. I've got to keep doing this, you know. And the idea that it's folly to those who are perishing. But it is the power of God for salvation. John? I think another One could, one could look and say, uh, I don't know exactly how, how Dabney did it, but it's a part of slavery. Uh, I know that a lot of, uh, a lot of ministers in the South during that time were, were in very, very vociferous support of the institution of slavery, saying, hey, they're, look, these Africans, they're, they're going to be subject to these slaves anyway, and brought over from Africa, they said, catch the gospel here, that their condition is better here on the plantations than it is in Africa. Um, and so... There is, and then, and then using the uh, the racial uh, categories of that of that time, um, 
And I can imagine that being off-putting to, to many people, and also that having careful textual criticism does not necessarily shield one from making substantial errors in judgment. And I was just thinking about how 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 to see how, how to see that today, because I think that there are that, that is also what people see when they look at older things that are written in an older style, not only are they approachable, but that some of the ideas contained in there are objectionable to them. Well, I mean, there's several things that you mentioned there. First of all, we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. I disagree with Dabney's view on slavery. I think he did try to justify it from the scriptures regulating slavery instead of condemning it. Um, so in that regard, I would disagree with Dabney, but that doesn't mean he's wrong on everything. He was a brilliant theologian. He was a godly man. He was a terrible adjutant general for Stonewall Jackson, and Stonewall got rid of him because he didn't know what he was doing in the military. Stay in a pulpit, Dabney. Don't come into the military tent. Um, but again, you don't want to condemn somebody's entire ministry because of one error. That's one thing. Secondly, we don't want to be chronologically snobbish, right? Things that are written before are not necessarily bad simply because they're old or ancient. That is chronological snobbery. And that is a logical fallacy. Either way, things today are not necessarily better. Things today are not necessarily worse. I have some friends who only read 16th century Puritans because they think everything today written is terrible. Well, that's snobbish, too. So either way, we want to make sure that we're comparing it with Scripture and holding fast to that which is good and letting go of that which is bad. I'm sure I have views on things that you would disagree with, but hopefully that doesn't jeopardize the entire ministry. Okay. Christian preaching also ought to include the character traits of Christ. We should hear about his love, his mercy, his grace, his compassion, other traits that equipped him which help to nourish the faith of those who come to God through his ministry. He was one like us, uh, tempted in all ways as we are, but without sin. The minister is called to feed God's flock, and to do this, he must feed their faith, your faith. Give them Christ, right? It should include and address some aspect of our fallen condition and point to us to the remedy. We're sinners, after all. That's the condition in which we enter this world. And there is a remedy, and we should be hearing about that. Modern preaching largely fails because it's generally silent about Christ. I can't find Jesus in your sermon. You know, we're going to talk about Jonah this morning. Again, a prophet who lived 800 to 1,000 years before Jesus. What does he have to do with Christ? A lot. People know what they ought to do but become dispirited and lethargic because they lack the strength. All of us. We need strength. We need to be fed. Their souls have to be fed, their faith has to be nourished, and the true manna is found only in Christ. So David Jordan says this, I think he's right, preach Christ and you will have morality. Don't just tell them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get in line. Preach Christ. And Christians ought to be the most moral people on the earth, more moral than the moralists themselves. Any questions about the content? Comments? Jonathan? Any ideas or questions that uh, you, you 
I got that all the time at home. <laughs> Roast the pastor. No, I think, you know, for example, with younger children, um, you may or may not like it, but the kids' log can be helpful. Here, here's the outline. What did you think about this point? What did you think about the sermon in general? Um, did it help you learn something about Jesus? You know, uh, there's all kinds of questions, and it depends on the age of your children, I think. But yeah, we're supposed to confer about the sermon. That's one of the responsibilities of hearers. Meditate and confer about the sermon. Hide it in your heart and bring forth the fruit of it in your life. Not an easy thing to do. Not an easy thing to do. Four failures, real quick. Moralism, Protestant liberalism. It does not preach reconciliation with God, but the way to live ethically. It wants to adopt the ethical system without redemptive foundation doesn't give me anything to live as a moralist. I need to know Christ. That's the strength to be ethical. We don't need to be scolded. We need to be fed. How to spends less time on what ought to be done and more time on how to do it. It reduces the Christian life to a technique. You know, the self-help books, we're all used to those. I want to know Christ. That's going to help me to be a better husband, a better father, a better teacher, whatever the case may be, plumber. Um, introspection, it persuades people that they do not, in fact, believe in the Lord Jesus. I was guilty of this, I think, early on. Always talking about, examine yourself. Look at yourself. Do you have these kings? If not, you're not a believer. This is not good. Unbelievers are given nothing to make them believers, and believers are given nothing to persuade them that they are believers. It's a terrible thing. Hopefully, I'm growing out of it. The consolations of the Christian faith are ripped away. Self-righteous likes it because it makes him feel good. Ah, I'm doing things right. And the conscientious believer is despondent. Social gospel comments on what is wrong with our culture. How do we improve culture? Leaves behind Christ. So, the only two legitimate ways to exert influence are to reason with people and to set an example for them. That's it. Any questions on those four failures? Okay, well, now we have an opportunity to critique the sermon. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and for the institution of the pulpit. We do pray that you'll keep our pulpit faithful. May it feed your people and may it honor Christ Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.